You are listening to ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. To all those physicians listening, you range from group practices to solo practitioners, but one commonality exists. You all need office space to practice. Today we're going to discuss the rental of office space and how leases are regulated under the current Stark laws. Welcome to the Business of Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell. Joining me today, Jim Bream, an attorney with the offices of Query and Harrow. Jim concentrates on the defense of hospitals, managed care organizations, and physicians in professional liability programs. He has handled cases in the trial and appellate courts and is a featured speaker and guest lecturer on various health care and medical legal issues. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you, Larry. Glad to be here. Jim, are you are you telling me now that leases are actually under the regulation by Stark? Yeah, I'm afraid that the good old days of a handshake and a promise with Uncle Phil are a bygone era. Why is Stark so concerned with everything to do with doctors? Can't he leave us alone? Well, the Stark regulations in this context can be implicated in situations where physicians lease equipment to a hospital or where hospitals lease office space to a physician to try to encourage that physician to bring his patients into the facility. Hospitals own a lot of professional buildings, and they're leasing out space all the time. That's true. And Stark doesn't say that there are no lease arrangements that are passable. Indeed, Stark contemplates that there will be these lease arrangements and that they will be quite acceptable as long as, under Stark, the lease is in writing, signed by both parties, and specifies the space covered by the lease. It has to be an actual lease. The rental term must be for at least one year, and the rent has to be at fair market value and not based on referrals or business generated. It also must be commercially reasonable even if the referrals are not made. Anything else Uncle Stark wants from us? Oh, you bet. How about rental charges over the term of the lease must be set in advance? In other words, you can't set the rental rental charges based upon a retrospective view of what actually came in the door in the way of income generation. The rental charges have to be consistent with fair market value, and they can't be determined in a manner that takes into account the volume or value of any referrals or other business generated between the parties. It's unbelievable. It seems like medicine is picked out that it cannot be a business, that we we cannot do anything like anyone else out there, that we have to be held up to this ridiculous standard. Hey, wait, I'm not done yet, okay? The lease has to meet other requirements as may be imposed as needed to protect against any kind of program or patient abuse. And you'll notice that's nice and vague so that it can be manipulated, adjusted, or evaluated in a given factual context. And the space leased can't exceed that which is reasonable. In other words, you can't lease a mansion when all the physician needs is a cottage. And it has to be necessary for the legitimate business purpose of the lease or rental. It has to be used exclusively by the tenant when being used by the tenant. It's not a perk that simply exists and can't be used. Now, there are some exceptions, such that the tenant can make payments for the use of space consisting of common areas, but that has to be where the payments do not exceed the tenant's pro rata share of space used exclusively by the tenant to the total amount of space other than common areas occupied by all purposes using such common areas. 
It's very clear. You know, obviously, I don't need an attorney to review any lease ever again because Stark laws are just so understandable and so easy and make perfect sense. I think that last sort of blog of legalese means that you can have a sweet sharing arrangement where everybody is taking on their proportionate share of overhead, but you can't have an arrangement where it's disproportionate. So I don't know what was going on 30 years ago, but obviously doctors were entering into some pretty wild arrangements and totally abused the system to the point where this Stark guy comes in and just lays down the law, and now things are just incredibly rigid, and I'm hoping one day that the pendulum might swing back a little bit so that we can just get some business done and not have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars just having attorneys reviewing our leases just to rent an office. Okay, so the the office is under scrutiny. That's right. Can they at least cut us some slack on equipment that we use in that office? Equipment, too, is regulated under Stark, and in order for an equipment lease to be able to dock in a safe harbor, payments must be made by a lessee of equipment to the lessor of the equipment for the use of that equipment so that the lease, again, just as with rental property, has to be set out in writing, has to be signed by the parties, and it must specify the equipment that's actually covered by the lease. It can't be generic, for instance. The equipment rented or leased should not exceed that which is reasonable and necessary for the legitimate business purpose of the lease or rental and must be used exclusively by the lessee when being used by the lessee. You're listening to Reach MD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell, and I'm with Jim Bream, an attorney and featured speaker on various healthcare and medical legal issues. We're talking about equipment leasing under Stark laws. Leases for equipment, just like leases for property, also need to be for a term of rental or lease for at least one year. In other words, you can't have a two-month sweet deal just to get the doctor to come over to your hospital from a rival facility or to lease equipment to that hospital in order to secure inpatient admissions from that physician. The rental charges over the term of the lease have to be set in advance, just like with property as we discussed, and consistent with fair market value. They can't be determined in a manner that takes into account the volume or value of referrals, and the lease must be commercially reasonable, even if there's no referrals that are made between the parties. I keep hearing this fair market value term used over and over again, and you know who determines what's fair? Well, Stark provides some guidance in terms of how to evaluate fair market value. You need to take into account the various standards that are set forth by Stark with respect to fair market value, but it's a it's a rather specific determination that needs to be made on a case-by-case basis. What other rules and regulations apply to my equipment leasing? Well, there's a nice catch-all. The lease also has to meet those other requirements that may be imposed by regulation as needed to protect against program or patient abuse. So are we talking about avoiding kickbacks here? Well, we need to keep in mind that the Stark regulations and the federal anti-kickback laws are really two different creatures. They roam in the same forest, they may eat the same food, and they're closely related, but they are different creatures. So what exactly are the anti-kickback regulations? Let's make a comparison with Stark. The Stark statute applies only to physicians who refer Medicaid and Medicare patients for specific services. 
These services are called Designated Health Services, or DHS, referrals to entities in which the physician or an immediate family member has a financial relationship are those that are covered under Stark 1 and Stark 2. There's 20 detailed exceptions to the prohibitions under Stark, and I highly recommend that your listeners consult with an attorney before engaging in any type of covered health service to verify that an exception to the regulation and prohibition has been met. Jim, can I refer to a partner in my own practice or to a group-operated x-ray facility? These 20 or so detailed exceptions, or what are called safe harbors, do include referrals to other physicians in the group. They do include referrals for in-office ancillary services. They do include referrals within prepaid health plans and to entities in which the physician is invested. That includes, by the way, publicly traded entities, oddly enough, hospitals in Puerto Rico, rural providers, and a hospital facility itself. Let's say I got a group of ENT docs, and they are leasing sleep study equipment from a group of internists. And those internists just happen to refer patients back to that ENT group. Kosher or not kosher? Well, the rent paid to the internists generating the referrals can be paid on a per-click or usage basis. However, the payment per unit has to be at fair market value and cannot change during the term of the contract. All right, so every month they cannot change the fee due based on one month being busier than another month. That's exactly right. It has to be set out in advance as a term in the lease agreement. But can you revisit that, or you have to wait a year? The term of the lease has to be, remember, for at least one year or more. So where does the anti-kickback statute differ from Stark? We mentioned earlier that Stark applies to Medicare and Medicaid. The anti-kickback statute is broader, and it applies to any federal health care program. The anti-kickback regulations for a violation requires bad intent, while the Stark violations can occur even with the best of intent. If we're comparing the difference between the anti-kickback statute and Stark, and we're looking at the issue of intent, one of the things that physicians in the listening audience need to be wary of is that even if they feel that they've arranged a very good relationship in the form of an office lease or in the form of an equipment lease, and their intent is nothing but the best, this works for everybody. We all come out on top on this, and it's going to benefit the patients too. But it runs afoul of Stark. It will not be protected. In other words, good intent isn't enough to create survival of a particular relationship under Stark. It's my understanding that Stark is really concerned with Medicare, Medicaid, probably TRICARE patients, anyone that works for the government. Only Medicare and Medicaid are going to be applicable under Stark. TRICARE and other government programs can be regulated under the anti-kickback statute. But then in anti-kickback legislation, we need to get into that issue of whether or not there's bad intent. So what if I have no patients in Medicare or Medicaid and I've got good intent? Do I have no Stark problems, but now I have kickback problems? If you have no patients in Medicaid or Medicare, you are a unique practitioner in this country. Put it this way, regulating something, when the government regulates something under Medicare or Medicaid, it's a bit like the federal government regulating interstate commerce. Everybody does it, everybody's susceptible to it, and if you don't go along with the program, 
you're going to lose. All right. So where are these Stark police? Are they um, circling the, the professional buildings of America? Are they, do they only get notified when somebody is hurt or when a deal goes bad or when a physician practice breaks up because the, the doctors aren't getting along and then these issues kind of come to fruition or are exposed? Clearly, the federal government and CMS, which oversees the Medicare and Medicaid programs, is raising the level of scrutiny of these types of relationships. It's in the government's best interest to prove that the legislation has validity and merit. Jim, thank you very much for this helpful information. I'd like to thank you for joining us today. We've been talking with Jim Bream. We've been listening to the Business of Medicine on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. 